what's that one thing that silver bullet that you know magic kind of pixie dust that you can sprinkle over me and, and help me to grow and it really got me thinking and i i wanted to answer that question welcome to creative elements a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity i'm your host jay klaus let's start the show Hello, welcome back to another episode of Creative Elements. You know, every week on this show, I'm talking to creators who are finding a lot of success. And a common topic that comes up is growth. Somehow, some way, all of these creators I talk to have some period of growth that fuels their ability to do their work at a really high level, usually full time. And I'm always trying to dig into why did they grow? What did they do to unlock growth? Growth is this really sexy concept that most creators and entrepreneurs are chasing all the time. So today on the show, I'm talking with Corey Haynes because he spent a lot of time thinking about and working on growth. So I was the head of growth at Bear Metrics, primarily did SaaS analytics. We also had a couple of add-on products like Recover and Cancellation Insights, which helped with um, churn and retention and preventing failed payments, things like that. But I was the head of growth, and I think I joined as team member number eight. As you just heard, Bear Metrics is a software as a service or SaaS company that works with other SaaS companies to help them understand and further fuel their own growth. And as a head of growth at a SaaS company focused on growth, Corey is an incredible wealth of knowledge on this topic. You may be thinking, wow, head of growth, that sounds like a really intense and valuable job. But what does that actually mean? Basically, Head of growth is a really fancy word for all things marketing, sales, and a little bit of customer success as well. We've been talking a lot about software here, but I want you to trust me because the approach that software companies take is really closely aligned with the path of creators. After all, software is a product, and so is anything that you create. Writing, photo, video, podcast, all of it. And paired closely with the concept of growth is marketing, which brings us to what Corey is doing today. Because Corey is no longer the head of growth at Bear Metrics. Today, he's a full-time creator with his own business called Swipe Files. Swipe Files is actually born from something a little bit more personal to me. Because in my experience as the head of growth, I was constantly trying to spin up new experiments, new pages, new channels, making tweaks here and there. And I always felt like I was starting from scratch. So Swipe Files was basically my attempt to say, you know what, I'm sick of this whole like reinventing the wheel. I want to have curated examples. I want to know why they're good. I also want to have a strong community that I can rely on to ask people for this. Because again, I was like damning people and sending emails and like just didn't feel like a scalable way for me to ask for favors of people (laughs) in a very collaborative way. Like I want to be able to return the favor as well. Swipe Files is a membership site that provides content, community, and courses to help you master marketing. Corey curates marketing examples, copywriting help, and more through his newsletter, membership community, and podcast. I just joined Swipe Files myself, and Corey is offering listeners of this show 50% off. More info is in the show notes and at the end of this episode. But I wanted to talk to Corey about what he's learned related to growth and how he utilizes a platform called Product Hunt specifically as a really effective marketing channel for his work. So in this episode, we talk about Corey's five pillars of growth, how he achieved early traction from Swipe Files, why he decided to go full-time, 
and a complete strategy for using Product Hunt to get in front of potential fans and customers. This episode gets super tactical, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it as you listen. Just let me know your thoughts on Twitter or Instagram by tagging me at jklaus. But now, let's talk to Corey. The, the head of growth definitely is a, is a daunting task because I think actually traditionally, when you think of growth, especially like you think of growth hackers and you think of um, like a growth product manager at a lot of consumer-focused kind of apps and, and sites and products. But for me, being at a B2B software company that was bootstrapped mainly and was you know not on the venture route, head of growth looked very differently. So you know, look at other people and their growth titles and they're doing things like basically conversion rate optimization. They're doing, you know, product management kind of work and they're doing these really like micro experiments of the cliche is button colors, but you have things like different uh, user paths and interfaces and things like that. But that was not at all what I did. For me, head of growth is mainly how do we grow revenue? How do we grow revenue efficiently? And so that's where the marketing and sales comes in. And yeah, it, it, it was a big task. I mean, it's, it's essentially, hey, you are responsible and incentivized for all things increasing monthly recurring revenue, MRR. And I can't say that it didn't stress me out a, a ton, but really my <laughs> approach was uh, just to take things day by day to, to work through it. And day to day, what it looked like was mainly I was doing a lot of demos and talking to a lot of customers and trialing users every day. And so I got to talk to about 10 to 20 founders and operators and marketers a week, usually, and looking through their account, answering questions, trying to give helpful strategic advice to them, and then growing bare metrics. So doing marketing experiments, creating content, spinning up new kind of programs, and then working with our customers as well. And so we had a very lively customer base, a really active customer base. And so there's a bit of upselling, a bit of education, and also using them as a resource as well for everything that we were doing. Head of growth has always seemed like such an intense title to me where like <laughs> it feels like you're putting a lot of trust or like a lot of hope on the back of this person. So when you came into that role, how did you position yourself as somebody that could do growth well and could help a company grow? How I positioned myself was I'm a kind of a, a jack of all trades a little bit. Not really. I mean, I think I can, I'm not a master of none. I'm a master of some things, but a jack of all trades can come in and take a full funnel approach, take a holistic approach across marketing and sales. And usually what you find with a lot of marketers and salespeople is that they're very specialized. And so given that it was a small company, uh, given that we wanted to have a very full funnel approach, it seemed like, well, I was the best fit for the role and what we wanted to do. I think everybody in the world wants growth in some way, right? So I would imagine you probably have, whether it's startup founders or creators themselves coming to you and saying like, I need to grow, how do I grow? What does that look like? What are the questions you run them through or the ways of thinking that you you challenge them to think about if, if they want to grow? Because growth seems mm. like an obvious thing we all want, but I'm sure it's super context specific. Oh yeah, yeah. And I learned that, that lesson really quickly because immediately once I started talking to customers, one of the first things I did actually when I started at Bear Metrics was, I just sat down and I talked with about 20 or 30 of our best, most active, largest customers. I just tried to get to know them personally. It wasn't like an interview or an interrogation. It was just, hey, I would love to get to know you. And how do you find bare metrics? And how do you use it? And tell me about everything else going on in your business, like not bare metrics related or not metrics related. And just trying to get to know them. I mean, even from those first conversations, it was, hey, you must talk to a lot of people like me. Like, what are you seeing work for other people? And 
how are they approaching it? And what are other people's metrics like? And what are you telling them to do? Like, well, what's working right now? Everyone wants, always wants to know, like, what's that one thing, that silver bullet, that, you know, magic kind of pixie dust that you can sprinkle over me and, and help me to grow. And it really got me thinking, and I, I wanted to answer that question. Obviously, it is very prescriptive. But really what I landed on over time as it kind of evolved was really these five kind of core pieces. So one is the market. And the market really determines a lot of your growth whether you like it or not, because we're seeing this with uh, with COVID and with the pandemic. But overnight, we saw a flip to really prioritize remote tools and collaboration tools and online video conferencing. Like I've I've talked to I know several startups in the space who are around you know video conferencing and recording and and they're just having explosive growth because the market dictated that. One of my favorite examples also is Gumroad with uh, Sahil because he raised so much money created a fantastic product, hired a generous team, but they weren't growing fast enough. Even though they were doing all the right things and had all the right ingredients, the market just wasn't there for the creator economy, you know, seven, eight years ago, whatever it was when he started it. And so, but over time, you know, he had this really tragic story of like, got this really slammed PR piece after he let a bunch of, let a bunch of people go. I think they got like a quarter of the team. He had like this really strong bout of depression, kind of like left the company for a while. But it continued to grow because the market was growing with him. And now, you know, we're seeing the creator economy just explode. I spoke with Sahil of Gumroad in episode number 31 of Creative Elements. And he talked about this change in the market that Corey is describing here. What Sahil talked about that has stuck with me is that as a market expands or reaches scale, it becomes more reasonable or even inevitable that new tools are created to support that growing market. And that's what we're seeing with this quote unquote creator economy. What scale does is it creates an economy and it creates like a market for people who build tools. And so when you have scale, you, ha- you get better tools made, right? Like Figma and Canva and all of these tools that didn't exist five years ago even. And that creates, makes it easier for more people to get in, which allows even better tooling to exist. And, and, and sort of the cycle continues and continues. So when you have the means of creation, it creates more creators, creates an economy that creates more means of creation. So anyways, the market is definitely one big part of that. So I always try to get down to, hey, who are your customers? And like, do you really know who they are? And who do you best serve? And how do you go reach them? And what is it like? How many people are like this? How much money do they usually spend on a product like yours? And then we get into the product, obviously, because you need to have something worth selling and worth giving to people. And so we usually talk about, you know, hey, what are the kind of like killer features that you have? And are there unique differentiators? And can you really deliver on the promises? And what are competitors doing better that, that you can't? Things like that. What advantages do they have? And then we get to the model. And this is the one that most people overlook the most, but the model is essentially what I categorize or split into uh, your activation model, which is how you get people into the product. And then the pricing model, which is how you charge them for using the product. And most people are just kind of like set a price and set an activation model and then just forget it and leave it. But what I found, there's a lot of opportunity there because it has to do with, especially for a software product, which is very utilitarian and it's very like outcome oriented where like does this thing help me or does it not help me it's all dependent on the activation model and is it worth paying for the the pricing model so how to get people in and a lot of people are overlooking onboarding they're overlooking even you know they think oh i want to set a free trial when in reality people want to use it for free for a while without a time limit or maybe it's the opposite of like i'm going to give people a free plan but really what they need and what they want is just to talk to someone, to walk them through it. So they want a, a personalized kind of concierge onboarding. So I try to tell people to tailor the activation model to how their customers are already behaving 
rather than what they want, right? You have to be customer centric. And then pricing is a whole other thing I won't even get into, but there's always <laughs> optimizations for your pricing model, for increasing pricing. I remember I, I talked to someone who he had launched 10 years prior to our carbon station and he was charging $2 per user and he hadn't changed the price once. And all of his competitors were charging, I think, up to $20 per user. So I was like, look, man, if you want to grow, honestly, I'll just double the price, triple the price, quadruple the price, like start somewhere. So anyways, that's a really extreme example. (laughs) The fourth bit, and I'll get through these a little bit quicker, but is um, messaging and positioning. Because at the end of the day, if if it doesn't click for someone where they understand how you're unique, who they serve, what it's like to get started, and if it's something that can help them, then it's all for not. It's, it's It's a moot point. And so this is where copywriting comes in, especially positioning. I love April Dunford's obviously awesome because it's just vastly overlooked and vastly underutilized, but you get all these kind of jargony words and cliches and people always want to jump straight to like these very ethereal kind of value propositions, but just get brass tacks, position yourself really well for your market and communicate that well. And then we get to the channels. And everyone always jumps straight to the channels. And that's why I leave yes. it last because it's, <laughs> oh, what things are you doing? And are, do Facebook ads work? And does SEO still work? And should we try this? Should we do that? But again, everything is for not in the channels. If you don't have your good positioning in your market, if you don't have a good product, if your pricing activation model isn't good, if you don't have a clear, compelling offer where you can describe it well and people understand it and it clicks on the website. And so then, then the channels is kind of like the last thing. It's, it's the least interesting of them all. But of course I ask, you know, just actually right before this, I was talking to someone and you really have to think about for also for your model, what kind of channels are good for you? Because you can't expect to onboard people one by one if you're charging them $2 per month or even $9 per month, maybe in the early days, right? But for a higher price product in general, you need more kind of hand-to-hand combat. So you're going to have to do more sales. You're going to have to go to events. You're going to have to just run some ads to get people interested. Whereas if you have a more uh, lower price product, you'll probably need to do more content, more PR, more referral marketing, a little bit more you know, scalable, non-hand-to-hand combat type of channels. So I, I walk people through those five, and usually we start to uncover some major themes of where people can get started and how to grow. After a quick break, Corey and I talk about the beginning of swipe files and taking the leap to going full-time. There's a lot that all creators can learn from here, so stick around and we'll be right back. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. 
Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link slash J. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash J and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com slash science. That's podcastmovement.com slash science. Welcome back to my conversation with Corey Haynes of Swipe Files. During his time at Bear Metrics, Corey really formed this theory of these five pillars of growth, market, product, model, messaging and positioning, and channels. And it wasn't long until he started to form the idea for his own product. But one of the things we wanted to do for Bear Metrics was start an affiliate program. Just an experiment. I thought, you know, there's some people in the space, some consultants, some agencies who, you know, might be financially incentivized to share Bear Metrics and we can build a really strong partnership and do co-marketing. But I was like, well, what does an affiliate what does a good affiliate marketing page look like for a SaaS company, for a B2B SaaS company? I have no idea. Like I need something to draw from. So I go and ask people, I post on Twitter, I try to make some connections here and there. And eventually I found some examples, but then I also wanted to know, hey, why did you design it that way? Like, why did you include these sections? Does this work for you? Does this not work for you? And so I had to do a whole bunch of work just to figure out the foundation of this one thing of like how to create a a landing page for your affiliate program as a SaaS company. And like, so you multiply that across all the different pages and emails and ads across all the different industries and types of businesses and products. And it gets really overwhelming. And you're like, wow, I can't believe I have to do so much work just to kind of reinvent the wheel every single time. So that's, that's a little bit more of where Swipe House was born. I love that second level of not only do I want to see what people are doing, but I want to know why. And also, is it working? Like so often we see oh, what yeah. other people are doing and we just kind of assume that it's working. So we mimic it and then it's not working. We're like, why isn't this working? And maybe it wasn't working for them in the first place either. <laughs> oh, 100%. I mean, we see that so often in marketing is it's way, way easier to copy and to imitate. But what happens is it's kind of like the uh, the telephone game. You know, where you like you whisper something to yeah. the f- person next to you, and then, and by the end, it's something completely different. And that happens in marketing where someone creates this really beautiful landing page, like Stripe, for example, and then everyone goes and copies it. 
But Stripe can do things that you can't do. They can afford to make uh, kind of like skip over these like rules and best practices. Also, they might be completely different than you and your needs. And so it has to all be very contextual. We've seen this even with a lot of SaaS landing pages, just in general, where they're just like these really ethereal pages where you're like, I don't even know what this does. And you leave the page thinking like, I, I have no new information. Like I'm more confused now than I was before. And it's because everyone's all, they get all cutesy with the illustrations and they use these really you know, big value propositions around it's going to change your life and saves you time. And but you're like, okay, so what does it do? Like, what's what's the main feature and who is this for? Like, am I, am I even the right person for this? So 100%, it's easy to copy without even knowing if it works or not. Jumping in here to say, again, I know Corey is talking a lot about software companies here when he talks about landing pages, but this is actually super relevant to any creator who has a public-facing presence. You need to make it super clear to the reader or the visitor what it is that you do and for whom. If you don't make a quick impression on the viewer and they don't leave with a good sense of what you're about, that's a completely lost opportunity. So I love this concept Corey's come up with of finding and sharing the context behind these different campaigns and design decisions. Swipe files seems like a pretty great idea. So I asked Corey when he knew it was time to leave Bear Metrics and go all in on swipe files full time. I knew that I had some initial traction. I'd also been itching for a long time to kind of strike out my own and fulfill my own kind of entrepreneurial appetite. And through through the pandemic, I think especially, I learned like, I really just want to do something different. I want to get out of here. I want to put it on my own. I, I felt like I'd gone through the pandemic and I was like, well, it's not going to get any worse than this. And so if I'm going to make this leap, I might, I might as well make it now and then things will get better over time. And so with the traction I had with Swipe Files, with all the idea, like I just came to a point, I think, especially where I thought there's no way I'm going to make the progress I want to with the time I have doing this on the side. And I would regret not putting the time into this. And so it felt like a, a turning point. How long had you been doing it on the side and or what had you developed to that point that you were able to get some traction? Yeah, I'd started officially working on it in March of 2020. So basically right in the beginning of the pandemic. The, the backstory to Swipe Files is that I had this idea for it and I keep a big log of startup ideas and content ideas and whatnot. And I'd fallen, started following this guy named Sako on Twitter who's creating these amazing prototype recreations in Webflow. So we created this PS4 prototype within Webflow. So I started following him. He got a bunch of kind of attention, wanted to do a giveaway to build someone's site or prototype for free. I won along with a whole bunch of other people. And we ended up making this into this no code rumble, quote unquote, where we all kind of worked together to build something. So that's when it kicked off in March. So giveaway was in end of January of last year started working on it in March. I think by the end of April, I had officially like made it live and got my first customers. And then by September, I had released about 50 teardowns and had about 100 members. And then I just started working on the community. And so that's where I felt like, okay, if I'm gonna really give this thing everything that it needs, like, and I got this much traction just with this one thing, which is teardowns, like, I think I can make it work with all the other things I have in mind. So with Swipe Files, you have, content, I'll loosely call it, you have a community. How is that similar or dissimilar from like a SaaS product in your mind now that you've seen both? You know, you mentioned these mm. five pillars of growth with market, product, model, messaging, positioning, and channels. How much does that map for a content and community business? Yeah, it really is quite similar because it's subscription-based. Um, I think that 
that those kind of five pillars of growth maps really well to any subscription-based products, mainly for SaaS and B2B SaaS, kind of like my world and where I've come from, but it really does. And I think that that's where I've kind of honed in for myself. Like my market is other marketers and entrepreneurs who are doing marketing for their business. The product now is kind of what I've been focusing a lot on. So the product now did expand from teardowns to community, now to newsletter, to also courses. And now I have this like kind of master swipe file, quite literally have a whole bunch of curated examples of, I think I have 1500 plus now at this point on a notion wow. doc. And then with the messaging, or I'm sorry, at the model, it's a hundred bucks a year, but now I have this all access pass. And so there's some, some tweaks there as well. But for a while also I was doing um, where the latest teardown was free. And that really helped because I could kind of get the benefits of releasing something out there for free to get a lot of attention and get people interested in it. But then once the the next one came out, then it would kind of go into the archive and be members only. So that's worked pretty well as well. Messaging and positioning, that's definitely made a tough one, but I think I've kind of nailed it now with content community and courses to help you master marketing. And it's basically a find your people. Here's the hub for if you're a marketer and want to level up your marketing game. And then the channels now has been the interesting part with the newsletter, with, with a little bit of blogging, my own personal Twitter following. How methodically knowing what you know did you go through those things? Because someone listening to this is probably like, okay, here's the playbook. I'm going to go through one by one. And it kind of sounded like there was an intentional order there. Were you able to hold yourself to that also? And now you're on like the channels part of it? Or did you do what a lot of us do, which is like jump straight to channels, like you were saying? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I very much did that. I thought for the market, I, I am the market for myself. I'm building this for myself. So I kind of felt I, I already had that one down. But still at the same time for the teardowns, which is what I started with, I asked people one by one over DMs and emails and over phone calls, hey, like, do you like reading teardowns? And what is it? What do you like about it? What do you not like about that? About it? And a lot of a lot of people said they love reading them, but there aren't enough of them. But they also don't like the kind of like blog format of them. They don't like that it looks like any other piece of content. So that's where came up the idea of like this very, it's very like blocked out on a page. So it's like image, paragraph, image, paragraph, image, paragraph, all side by side. So that's how I sort of tailored the product to the market. The model, again, I went through because I knew that if I just locked it down from the beginning as members only, I wouldn't get any traction. But if I gave it all away for free and then I put it in lockdown, that might not also be a, a good experience for my audience or for those people. So that's where I came up with the idea for that the latest teardown would be free. But I've also thought about that very intentionally now for the membership with the community as well, because it's part of my core thesis with the community being that there's a whole bunch of free marketing communities out there and they suck because they're free. So I'm going to make it paid and, and we're going to have to go through a free trial and introduce the trial after people said, well, I want to you know, experience it, introduce myself before you know, deciding. And that's a, a thing I'm happy to give away for people. So yeah, absolutely. I've, I've gone through each of those. And really the channels is where I'm just getting to now with being more intentional about drawing attention to it, building up my following and getting more members in the door. And so now we've come to one of the main reasons that I wanted to have Corey on the show today. For the last several months, I've noticed just how good Corey is at utilizing a platform called Product Hunt as a channel for sharing swipe files, as well as another really great product he works with called Savvy Cow. Product Hunt has long been a platform that I've had interest in utilizing, but it seems like there are a lot of insider tactics to be aware of if you're going to use it well. We dig into specific Product Hunt strategy here soon, but I'll let Corey explain more about what Product Hunt is first. Product Hunt is 
basically a site and a newsletter that started by Ryan Hoover way back in the startup days of yore, I think, I don't know, in the early 2010s. Since then, it's really evolved into like the place that you launch tech products. It's actually interesting kind of with their own evolution and positioning, because I think they originally wanted to branch out into like books and content and podcasts and like basically like the place to discover anything, but where they found the most traction, where they've really found their communities within tech and especially with like makers, people who are creating sites and software and widgets and, and things like that. And so really product Ten is a, it's kind of like this front page where every day new products get launched or hunted, quote unquote, even though the hunting isn't like a huge part of the whole process these days. And they get featured on the page every day and then they get upvoted. And so you have like this hierarchy of here are the top products for the day. Here's the top product for the day. And then the next day it all starts over and there's new products launched. And so every day there's this new feed of products that are hunted and featured and, and launched there. So for the tech community, it's really been a place to initially it was very much like this is where you you get your first users and you launch it and it's discovered and so you just kind of get it as like early traction these days it's a little bit more of a place to kind of like make your big splash and really like really use it as a marketing channel to get customers and not just like early users and to really kind of fight for that top spot because they have this big newsletter now which it goes out to there's a lot of influence in the space they have a ton of traffic and so it has a lot of potential to kickstart your marketing to get a lot of users and customers. I've always looked at it as like a tech place, which is part of the reason why I haven't used it much because it felt like, is this for me? But you know, here I am and I'm hearing you talk about your products for swipe files and your products being content, your products being community. And that's very much the, the lane that I'm swimming in. A lot of people listening to this are swimming in. So does that work on product hunt? I think so to a certain degree. Again, kind of thinking back to that first pillar of growth, which is your your market, it's mainly just about are my people on Product Hunt? I mean, really, for Swipe Files, it's a membership community. It's content at the end of the day. It's not like a lot of the other tech products where it's, you know, GDB3 and a new SaaS app or some sort of like cool Chrome extension or something like that. But there are marketers and entrepreneurs on Product Hunt. So uh, as long as I think that if you know that your people, your type of people are on Product Hunt, then it can work for you. Now, to what degree? I don't know. I didn't get the top spot on Product Hunt. I got number two for the day. And I think it's it very good. much, yeah, it's, it's very good. I think for, I pulled my weight compared to a lot of the other ones, but the part of the beat was actually a friend uh, and it was Headline, which is a GTP3 powered copywriting app, basically. And like, I'm not going to beat that. There's no way because it just appeals to that audience more organically. But I managed to drive a lot of people to Product Hunt which managed to get me in front of a lot of other people on product and because I had that top spot there. So I'm not going to say that it works for anyone and everyone producing content-based products or kind of business or, or sites. But if your type of people are on there, and if you have a way to drive your people to product, especially, you can make it work to some degree or another. When we come back, Corey and I get super tactical into the strategy he's seen work for launching something on product hunt. I found myself taking a lot of notes on this, and you might too, right after this. Welcome back. After seeing Corey become a top product on Product Hunt for both Swipe Files and Savvy Cal, I knew he would be the guy to ask about specific strategy that other creators like you or me could put to use. So I started getting really specific, asking questions like, how many products get posted on Product Hunt every day? I couldn't tell you exact numbers. I do know that not every 
product posted makes it to their front page on Product Hunt. I found this out actually when I first launched on Product Hunt, my job board just for marketers called Hey Marketers. And I posted it like late in the day. It was like 9 a.m. because I had fallen asleep the night before trying to stay up for midnight to post it. And then it was on there, but everyone was like, hey, I can't find it on the front page. So I was like, what the heck? And DM'd them like, oh, well, we'll add you to the front page. And I was like, interesting. I didn't know that that's how it worked. So I don't I don't know if there's even a way for like me as someone not behind the scenes or product to know how many actually make it onto the front page versus are actually launched. But I know for the ones that make it on the front page, there's usually 20 to 30. So I'd assume there's probably anywhere from 30 to 100 products launched every day on Product Hunt. You said something interesting just now, which was you launched late at 9 a.m. Yeah. What does that mean? That sounds pretty early to me. Yeah. So so the clock resets every day at midnight Pacific time, uh, which is where Product Hunt was based. So essentially, as soon as the next one starts, then the old products for the for last day, you know, go away. And now we have kind of open range. It's open for anyone to post for the new day. And so I posted late because by that time there was already, you know, 30-ish other products on there. They already had upvotes. And so now I'm kind of like, I'm fighting upstream. Like I'm gonna have to make up for for lost ground. Because also at midnight, when that clock resets, now there's new people coming to the site who are looking for products to, to discover and to upvote, right? And so it's actually a really key for product tennis. Maybe like the most key thing, as silly as it sounds, to launch exactly at midnight, because the earlier they're there, that you're there, the earlier you can get votes to your product, and the earlier that you can take that top spot compared to the other products. And then it's much easier to defend your spot as a, as a, in, a, in a top place than it is to get there and like overtake everyone else in the top place. Super interesting. I learned a little bit about Hacker News last year, and it's a little bit different. Like we realized with that strategy, you wanted to post it when people were actually on the site looking at it, because then you have a chance to be like picked up in the first five minutes that it's live. Right. Whereas here you're saying like you want to maximize the amount of impressions you can have in a 24 hour period. So if I'm on Eastern time, I want to be posting at 3 a.m. Eastern my product at launch. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. So me living in San Diego, I'm at an advantage because it's only midnight for me. If you lived in Hawaii, it'd be 9 p.m. and you'd be, you know, it'd be in easy breezy for you. But for example, when I helped Derek Reimer launch SavvyCal, who I'm consulting with, he lives in Minneapolis. And so he actually, I stayed up for him and kind of did some of the grunt work when uh, midnight struck Pacific time. And he happened to wake up at 2 a.m. his time to kind of like check in and post a couple of things. But yeah, that's the reality of it is it's it's pretty important to just hit the ground running and get started as early as possible. And that was really key for me for Swipefiles and for SavvyCal on both our launches. Something else that's been kind of holding me back with Product Hunt is I didn't know when in the product's life cycle it's appropriate to put to Product Hunt. Does it have to be something that's just launching a new version or like take, take this show as an example, Creative Elements has existed for almost a year. Have I missed my window to post on Product Hunt? Not at all. Yeah, you, you can post as late as you want. You can launch, quote unquote, as late as you want on, on Product Hunt. And in fact, I think it's actually advantageous to launch like later than you would think to, especially when you have some sort of audience and familiarity, familiarity with your product already. For example, with Swipe Files, I already had a newsletter of, you know, a couple thousand people. I already had a, you know, core 
base of about 200 members. I had my personal Twitter following, which is a couple thousand people. And so me launching into Product Hunt, especially for those people, I can get them to say, hey, I'm on Product Hunt today. Please go share, right? Whereas if I didn't have those initial like group of users, I would be you know, speaking into the void. I would have no one to share my stuff. I'd have to go DM all my friends and stuff. And so it's actually good. I mean, same thing with SavvyCal. Like we had several hundred users and a large portion of those directly from the email went to Prodaton and upvoted, commented, you know, gave it a review, gave it a share. And so it's never too late for sure. And it's probably a little bit advantageous. And this is kind of, again, where it comes back to you, I said before, where Prodaton used to be like, this is where your product starts but now it's a little bit more of like, this is kind of your opportunity to make a big splash and gain a lot of users and customers rather than like that initial traction. So it definitely helps to already have something established and then to launch later. Okay, so let's say, I'm, I'm gonna keep using the show as an example because it's easy to latch onto. Yeah. Have thousands and thousands of listeners for every episode. Got thousands of people on an email list. Got a small Facebook community for this show. If I post this at 3 a.m. Eastern, do I try to push those people to go engage with it right away? And in what way should they engage? Is it just like upvoting it? It's sharing something meaningful? Yeah, so there's a little bit of taboo and a little bit of like some rules that you wanna abide by. Like you're, you're not supposed to directly ask people to upvote, but it's a little bit implied, right? So you can use some words like, can you please go support us on Product Hunt? Can you please go leave a comment? and while you're at it, you know, leave a review or something like that. Especially on social media, you don't wanna even uh, use the word upvote. In your email, you probably can get away with it, to be honest. But yeah, absolutely. So when for Swipe Files and for SavvyCal, uh, we had tweets scheduled, we had the email scheduled, and we had the announcement sort of like go live at 12.05 a.m. Pacific time. And that way, again, we can get that ball rolling and drive people immediately to it so that we can ask them to comment, upvote, to leave a review as early as possible to get that traction. So I think if I remember correctly with uh, with SavvyCal, especially, we had like 50 upvotes by like 12.15. We were in the, in the number one position just from like those initial tweets and email. Wow. And then like from there, it wasn't that hard to be honest to like keep that up. We we ended up losing that top position within like the last two hours of the day when we launched to like another product, which kind of had a suspiciously late run in the day for all the votes that they got. But it wasn't hard once we got that initial traction. You know, it sounded a little bit crazy too, but this is what Derek and I talked about where he was like, we're going to send an email at midnight. And I said, yes, because a lot of people are, you know, over in like uh, in the UK and Europe or even in, you know, Australia, Asia, and it's the middle of the day for them or it's the morning for them. So it's fine. You have night owls like myself <laughs> who are or up late and checking email late for some reason. It's just like a crazy habit. But that initial traction is so important. And you can even send another email, you know, more tweets throughout the day, but sending it as early as possible really is key to secure those early, that early traction. So talk to me then about the actual product hunt page or whether you call it a campaign itself. I know there are like hunters versus makers. Can you explain right. that? Yeah. So the makers are the people behind the product. And so that for me, it was myself for SavvyCal. It was Derek, the founder. And then we have hunters. So you can hunt your own product as the maker. So I could have hunted Swipe Files. Derek could have hunted SavvyCal. But a hunter is someone who basically lists 
your product for you. And so they have a separate product hunt account, obviously, and profile. They also they might also have uh, followers within Product Hunt. And how Product Hunt works is that if you you can accumulate followers just like any other social platform. And then anytime that you hunt something, it will notify the rest of your followers. Now I don't actually know if it's that important or if it's that effective, but the real advantage of having a hunter is a, kind of like a halo effect. So if you have a, a Chris Messina, for example, hunt your product, he has hundreds of thousands of followers on Twitter and other social platforms. He's very well known in the tech space. And so you kind of, you can leech on to his trustworthiness and his brand and how people know him, right? It's a little bit of influence marketing, a little sure. bit. So I had Heaton Shaw, who also is very well known in the tech space and the startup space. He's an investor, entrepreneur, hunt both swipe files and Savvy Cal. And the advantage for him as well was one, he gets to hunt it. And I don't know the exact terminology for it, but a lot of people have speculated that Product Hunt has like a, a whitelist essentially of like whenever these people hunt it automatically goes to the front page and like gets a little bit of like organic boost, essentially. Like they just automatically kind of send it through. Um, again, I was not on the whitelist when I first launched on Product Hunt. That's why I probably didn't make it to the front page and had to ask for it once I was kind of verified and, and reviewed. But the real benefit to the hunter is you get their exposure to their social following usually is, is the big one. Whether or not the notifications to their followers on Product Hunt is effective, I'm not exactly sure, but you get the halo effect from them, absolutely. And then the page itself is kind of like a combination of, um, you have multimedia like videos and images. You have kind of an initial post where just kind of a quick description of what you are. There's a couple of tags. You can link out to your site or whatever place that you want to send people to. And then there's a list of comments and you can also be like the first comment as the maker, as the hunter and describe, you know, what it is and why you're launching and what people can expect. You can also include like a deal, especially for, for product on people. So what we did for both Swipe Files and Savvy Cal was we did a really quick, like two minute walkthrough from myself and Derek, where we would walk through our products on video and just like a really quick loom video where I use Soapbox by Wistia. So it's just like a side-by-side my face and a screen share of the product. And that allows people to get to know me and really see me. And it's very quick to kind of skim through, but then there's a couple other images that just highlight sort of the, the features, if you will. And then you have all the comments below of everyone else. So in the, the first comment, it's just me introducing myself. Hey, here's the problem I was looking to solve. I was sick of reinventing the wheel, et cetera, everything I just told you. Here's the solution. It's a, we have content, we have courses, we have the community, we have this access to this database, et cetera. And that, that's really the, the core of it. I mean, it's not terribly complicated. It takes about five minutes to list it there as long as you have all the right ingredients. How would you rank or prioritize the importance of like, do you think video is the way to go? What other images do you think you should include? How important is the thumbnail image, the little square thing that I see on the page? How much, how much weight do you put on those ingredients? For the actual listing, the video and the images are are probably the most critical part of the whole thing. The thumbnail, I don't know if is is super interesting. Like if you can have a, a fancy GIF with an animation, it might, you know, attract a couple more users, but really it's it's not a huge kind of part of the strategy. It's not if you just have your logo, like that's totally fine. It doesn't need to be terribly creative. But yeah, I mean I think the video Video is optional, but I think that it helps. Like it help, definitely helps you stand out. And a lot of people like watching a video from the founder, but the images definitely are one of the most important kind of key parts. And really, you don't want to just throw up any old screenshots. You want to really put your best put, foot forward. So you're showing, you know, for me, I'm showing the most interesting parts, which are 
the community, the database, uh, you know, swipe file. I'm talking about uh, some of the other features and ways that members are interacting with one another. For Savicals, like these are like the coolest features. Here's the calendar overlay. Here's the personalized links, et cetera, et cetera. But that's really it. Yeah, there's not a lot to it. I mean, it's as long as you have those things set, they're high quality, they're the right dimensions, they're showcasing what you want to stand apart, then um, it's not rocket science. Anyone can do it. So if I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, I can make all these things and I feel good about my product, but I don't have connections to a whitelisted or high profile hunter. Should that hold me back? Should I spend time looking for that person or building a relationship or should I just let her rip? I think that it's, it's always worth putting at least a little bit of time into it. Chris Messina, actually, he has like a specialized page on his site where you can book a time for him to hunt your product and then you can tip him, you know, and buy him a, a, a coffee. So there's, there's always him if you can get on his calendar. There's also a couple sites. I forget what they're called, but it's like, you know, top hunters. And there's like a list of like the 500 top hunters on product hunt. And you could kind of work that list and go down. But it absolutely shouldn't hold you back from from launching on product hunt. If you just want to hunt yourself, at the end of the day, it's a it's a bonus. It's not a requirement. And so um, it's more about, can you afford to not have a hunter? And if you already have a large established audience or you have a, a, a other people who you can ask to share and help you kind of build some momentum, then you're fine without it. But it's, um, it's definitely an added bonus if you can. All right, last product hunt question. How should I set my expectations of this or what goals should I set for myself for my product hunt campaign? Oh man. Yeah. Expectations are always the hardest part for me. Um, being a marketer, because I'm a, also a very like optimistic person just naturally. And so I always have like the highest expectations personally, but then the, what I communicate to others is probably like the more conservative lowest expectations. And what I've learned to do is just like have basically zero expectations in the way that if we do everything right, things should go well. I just don't know how well. And putting a hard number on it can be a little bit discouraging of, oh no, I wanted 50 new members. I only got 40. Well, like that's still a win. But even then, so what happened with SavvyCal was we had very low expectations of like, you know, let's just do this and let's see what happens. We might get a lot of users. It worked exceptionally well. Like we had amazing results, thousands and thousands of users and tens of thousands of visits and people wow. who made a bunch of kind of a big deal about it. And so in that case, we set expectations low, but re- the reality was that it worked much better than we thought. Now, should we have had higher expectations before? Like not necessarily, but I think that's more about as long as you're doing all the right things and you're setting yourself up for success, you know, what would you be happy with? I try to just, what's the bare minimum that I would be happy with? And for me, it was 20 new members, for SavvyCal, we wanted 50 customers. Uh, we both exceeded those goals, me by a hair, him um, by a long shot. But yeah, I think as long as you have like, what's the bear might be happy with and you do your best, uh, that's the way I would think about it. I lied, I had one more question. What, how do you think about day of the week? Yeah, the day of the week, uh, that is a good question. Generally, the weekends are a little bit slower and a little bit less competitive. Earlier in the week is definitely more competitive. So Monday, so when the week starts, most people like plan on on launching that day. So you can expect some more competition. Also Wednesdays, because it's midweek, by that time, usually people are getting distracted throughout the week. They're tired of their job or they just need kind of an outlet. And it is midweek, so people are in the zone. And usually, you know, Monday, Monday, Tuesday, people are just getting started. And so Wednesday, people are finally able to, you know, go explore something else. So personally, I like the days Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. But that's just my own personal thing. I've seen people have great success on Saturday and Sunday as well. 
I will say the one like maybe more strategic part to the timing is actually the day of the month. Because what happens is if you can do earlier in the month, then you have more time to become a top product for the month. And at the end of the month, there's also a monthly newsletter. And so if you can give yourself a better shot to be featured in that monthly newsletter, then you have a better shot there. I would even say like, so for Savvy Cal, we ended up being the number one product of the week. And that helped tremendously, even though we launched on a Thursday, like later in the week, we still managed to get the number one product of the week. If we had really engineered that from the beginning, I probably would have launched on a Tuesday, I think, to give ourselves a little bit more time. But the weekly newsletter feature was about three times more effective as the actual product on front page listing. And so if you can engineer yourself to be product of the week or give yourself a shot at product of the month, that can also be an added bonus. So good, man. What's next for swipe files? Will you ever do another launch or you feel like you took the one shot and that's it? Yeah, I think I'll definitely do another launch. It's just a matter of sort of what I'm launching and and why I'm launching it. I think I've probably given myself like a a good, like this is like the main thing. You can always launch a product on again with like, here's a new like interesting feature or perk, or you could even do like a 2.0 kind of launch. So maybe that's, you know, next year I'll do like a 2.0 if there's something worthy of kind of living up to that 2.0 version. But yeah, I mean, I think just in general too, beyond product on, like you always want to be, launching things. We actually, for, for Savico, we engineered things really specifically where we had like a, a pre pre launch where we did like, Hey, we're going to be launching on product hunt. Who's going to help us like trying to build up some early, you know, momentum and just kind of get it top of mind for people. And then we did a pre launch where we did a username reservation because we wanted people to kind of get first dibs on the usernames before the whole kind of flood of product hunt people came through the door. Then we did the product hunt launch. And then we did kind of a well, it happened this way, but it was more of like a momentum launch where we got featured in the, new, the weekly newsletter. And then we did a, f- a follow-up launch with this Calendly buyout campaign. I didn't do nearly as much for, for swipe files, but I'm more thinking of like a long-term approach. So every month I'm trying to you know ship something new. Of, uh, I have a new podcast coming out. I'm creating new courses, creating new facets of swipe files. I'm launching a book club. So all those things maybe aren't like product hunt worthy, but I'm constantly trying to launch at least one kind of new noteworthy thing a month, whether it's on credit or not. This conversation with Corey was a lot of fun. He's clearly a really thoughtful guy. And I love when someone has thought so deeply about something that they can articulate their experience into an actual strategy or framework. I also love having conversations like this early on in someone's full-time creative journey. We talked to a lot of folks on the show who have been independent creators for a decade or more, but when we can zoom in on someone who is doing this right now in real time, it's super relatable and even makes it feel more approachable. I just became a member of the Swipe Files community and you can too. Not only am I an affiliate, but Corey has offered 50% off for listeners of Creative Elements, bringing annual membership down from $99 to $49. A link to the membership is in the show notes and you can use code ELEMENTS to save 50%. And I'll definitely be planning a product hunt launch for this show. So if you aren't already part of our community, please join our Creative Elements listeners group on Facebook. Thanks to Corey for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Todd Hunter for mixing the show and to Brian Skeel for creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you next week.
the Podglomerate, a sonic universe.